I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Ag engineer Paul Yassa with the University of Nebraska has spent years studying how equipment and management choices work together and impact results in various farming systems. He's conducted 40 years of research on no-till versus conventional tillage at the Rogers Memorial Farm outside of Lincoln, Nebraska, and was instrumental in making rainfall simulators portable and easy to use for field days and demonstrations. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Paul Yassa about his many years studying no-till. Listen in as Frank and Paul discuss how no-till led to changes in ecofallow practices, how cover crops can be used to both soak up extra water during wet times and conserve water during periods of drought, the pros and cons of planting green, and much more. So, Paul, tell me a little about where you grew up in Nebraska and before you moved to Lincoln. I grew up in northeast Nebraska, up in Thurston County. Mixed uh, agricultural area, corn, soybeans, oats, alfalfa, uh, a lot of hogs and cattle as well, and a few chickens. Mm-hmm. Uh, typical as uh, small farmers were back 60 years ago. Uh, my dad had irrigation, uh, one of the few in the area. Uh, that was way before irrigation caught on, but then irrigation did catch on later. So uh, I had both irrigated dryland experience and a variety of crops. And uh, I was uh, sort of dad's favorite son when it came to helping in the field. So I got to spend a little bit of time working in the fields, primarily doing tillage, which was uh, sort of a precursor to me going to no-till, I guess. And actually the funny story is uh, when my mother was pregnant and expecting me, she was quite restless. And uh, having trouble sleeping, my dad couldn't sleep as well because of her being restless. <laughs> so in the springtime, he got up and actually went to the field and, and was plowing. And uh, he went to the field about 4.30. Well, about 6 o'clock, he saw the yard light in the yard flashing on and off. It was my mm-hmm. mom going into labor. <laughs> so dad had to quit plowing to go take her to the hospital. And I was born just a few hours later. So April, spring tillage season. I interrupted Dad's plowing. And again, sort of a twist when I am a no-teller now. Right, right. We had somebody a few years ago who uh, said they had been to the no-tillage conference uh, five or six times in a row, and they told us they weren't coming this year. And uh, we said, well, how come? What's the matter? And they said, well, in January, we're going to be having a newborn baby. And then we calculated nine months back, and you know, we were talking about reasons why you shouldn't go to the field too early, and maybe this was one of them for them. I don't know. That could be true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you you mentioned dry land and irrigation, and Nebraska is an interesting state because you get west and you got a lot of dry land, and then you got good soils with some moisture in the east, and then irrigation. So you got a little bit of everything. Yeah, the state is roughly uh, half irrigated, half dry land when it comes to the crop production. So my upbringing was a, a good start to get uh, familiar with both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was blessed, though, on the eastern part of the state, we do get a lot more inches of rainfall. Uh, Nebraska is unique that uh, from one corner to the other corner, we go from 36 inches down to about 10 inches. And uh, so it's about every oh, 25 to 50 miles, depending on who you talk to, you lose an inch of precip. 
Also, the soil variability going from one corner to the other corner is uh, heavy clay loams uh, on the one corner to uh, very sandy soils on the other, and uh, calcareous as well. And in fact, across Nebraska, we've got more variability in soils and rainfall than going from the Missouri River all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. And again, when it came to uh, my experiences then to work with producers, I had some mixed experiences, but as I started working statewide, I started learning a lot more about a lot more varying conditions. Yeah. So you went to Lincoln, got a bachelor's degree at, at the University of Nebraska and also a master's degree, right? Correct. University of Nebraska, you're a Nebraska farm boy, that is the place you're going to go. I wanted to major in ag engineering, and again, in the state, that's the only ag engineering program there was. Mm-hmm. And so getting a bachelor's degree, uh, unfortunately, I finished my bachelor's degree in 1978. was uh, about the time of that first real uh, tough farm crisis that was occurring because of uh, energy, because of sure. a whole series of activities. Uh, when it came to engineering, uh, industry was not hiring. They laying off engineers a lot of experience. I decided to stay for a master's. Uh, finished that in early 1981, and the farm industry was about the same. So I just stuck <laughs> around at the university. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your uh, master's thesis, because you looked at corn seed spacing with, what, maybe 150 growers in Nebraska? Uh, we went across Nebraska in uh, 1970. Nine and uh, visited uh, about 100 people planting corn, mm-hmm. about 25 planting grain sorghum, 25 planting soybeans. And I actually then went back to the fields a couple weeks later and measured corn seed spacing uniformity. I uh, didn't have enough there to really look at the grain sorghum and soybeans, but then looked at the spacing uniformity and uh, tried to look at uh, uniformity of planting depth. That was a little harder at that time uh, because basically we was just trying to dig up the seed and see if I could find it. Mm-hmm. So I focused more on the spacing uniformity. Well, the original interview, you know, a few weeks before, I uh, took down the information of what was on their planter. Did they have a furrow opener? Did they have a uh, wide press wheel, skinny press wheel? You know, what was their planter equipped like and what was their tillage system? So then I sat down and analyzed what was the relationship of any of the planters set up to the seed spacing uniformity, likewise the tillage systems. Mm-hmm. That was a, sort of a precursor then in 80 and 81 then, I actually went to the field with six different planters at five different locations and uh, did different tillage systems. And so then the rest of my thesis was how did the planters perform in the different tillage systems? And at that time it was interesting because uh, that was when we were having a major transition in planters. Runners were disappearing, double discs were coming out, uh, better down pressure, better uh, parallel lengths, uh, all sorts of improvements on the planter uh, that uh, I almost need to do the whole research project over again because the <laughs> uh, planting equipment is so different. Right. So was this kind of your first interest in no-till when you saw what was happening out in the field? It was uh, the interest in no-till because uh, in the, the original work I did, I actually had two planters that performed better in no-till than they did in any of the tilled soils. Mm-hmm. And again, remember the late uh, 70s, early 80s, everybody thought you had to do tillage to get a good seed bed, get good stands. Well, when I was getting a better stand in no-till, I said, this is worth exploring. Yeah. And uh, as I was finishing the thesis, I actually started working for the university full-time before I finished. And in 1981, uh, Dr. Albert Dickey landed a grant 
to look at uh, different tillage systems, energy use, uh, residue, uh, erosion control, things like this. And again, that's when I established a set of plots in 1981. Based on my experiences, what I saw in the field, a little three-year grant, I says, all right, three years, we're going to find out no-till may or may not work. Uh, we can always go back to tillage. So was this the start of the uh, Rogers Farm plots that have gone on for 40 years or not? That's exactly the set of plots. And speaking of, uh, my original work on uh, when I was looking at seed spacing uniformity, I actually had a set of no-till plots at the Rogers Farm. But those plots were just for the one year to look at the seed spacing uniformity. We were actually using those plots for rainfall simulation work and erosion. And so we saw the erosion runoff from a, a first-year no-till. Uh, when I started these plots, uh, first year, till to no-till were about the same. Second year, I started figuring out how to no-till. Third year, the grant was over, and I says, hey, I know what's going on now. Let's keep those plots going. And yeah. here it is, uh, 40 years later, they're still right. going. So what's the big thing you've l learned at 40 years after, out of those plots or a couple things? Well, as a university researcher, a lot of university researchers look at a fairly narrow view, try to compare A to B or A to B to C. They only look at a certain variable. They don't look at a systems approach. And again, the young engineer working with the equipment, that's what I was looking at is how is the planter performing. I learned real fast after year one, I needed to understand weed control. After year two, I started figuring out, well, it's not just weed control, it's timing of activities. Uh, year three, it was residue management behind the combine. And every year I learned something new, and that's why I says, I'm starting to figure it out, let's keep the plots going. And the systems approach is what it takes. Uh, about year five, I realized it was continuous no-till is what it takes. Mm -hmm. You don't just plant the crop one year without tillage and call it no-till because you're still living on a tilled soil history. Right. And so the systems approach and continuous no-till is what I learned in the early days. So Nebraska, Ohio, Iowa State was uh, there. There are three groups, and there are probably a couple others. But it's interesting because I go back so far, the 1972 when we started No-Till Farmer. But here's three groups where the ag engineers seem to be much more interested in no-till than the agronomists. Oh, we even <laughs> laugh about that to this day. That. Uh, when it comes to our own University of Nebraska system, a lot of our agronomists are, again, studying a fairly narrow window of something, and they want controlled conditions, and their idea of controlled conditions is they're going to till it all uniform. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that uh, uh, our Rogers Memorial Farm, run by a group of engineers, we are looking more at agronomic aspects, cover crops, crop response, things like that. And the agronomy group is, uh, they're doing agronomic things as well, but they're doing a lot of tillage. They're the ones playing with the machinery. And again, to me, it seems backwards. Us engineers should have the machinery, the agronomists should have the soils. Right. But again, uh, we see that at other universities as well. And I think that comes from that systems approach, thinking outside the box. We think more about stuff that's not within our discipline. How does it affect what's going on? Mm -hmm. I, I got some notes off the material sent me, and you talked about 1983, starting with a five-year project to expand use conservation tillage in eastern Nebraska. Tell us a little about that project. At that time, it was uh, interesting. Exxon, the oil company, got their fingers slapped a little bit for overcharging for mm -hmm. their products. And what they did as part of their settlement was they would give out, uh, we called it an energy project. Uh, we were supposed to focus on using that Exxon money from energy. How can we reduce on-farm energy? 
And the project here in Nebraska, we actually had three prongs. Uh, one was out western Nebraska with a hooked in dryland production, what we call eco-fallow, which was a form of no-till. In central Nebraska, where a lot of irrigation, they looked at reducing irrigation water use and irrigation water demand to reduce energy on farm. Eastern Nebraska, with erosion, was a major problem. We looked at no-till uh, or other conservation tillage systems. We drifted toward the no-till based on the experiences I had on the research farm in the three years of plots. And so in this five-year grant, it was basically I'd go visit with a farmer and talk to him about no-till and uh, said, let's take your equipment, your management, your soils, can you no-till? And uh, a lot of it was simply split the field, A versus B. Sure. Uh, it might have been a plow system on this half, no-till on that half, you know, the very extreme case. Or it might have been a good conservation till system where it was a two-disc and plant versus no-till. But again, doing that A versus B type of thing, uh, again, it was a fairly narrow thing. It was not a systems approach. It was not looking at crop rotation and diversity or continuous no-till. But we were looking at energy. That's what the grant was for, to save energy. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we also knew then it also uh, reduced crusting and reduced erosion because it left the residue on the soil surface. Unfortunately, uh, with the soil structure not improved yet, we didn't really decrease runoff that much. Uh, so again, across the years, that five-year grant, we had some producers we worked with only one year. Some would work with them one year and they had a failure, so we'd go back the second year to figure out why they failed and fix the failure. And about oh, 90, 95% of those producers are no-tillers today simply because once they figured it out, it was like, why were we tilling? Right. And so that was an interesting grant, but what it gave me was the opportunity to learn no-till on many different soils, many different conditions, many different management schemes, many different pieces of equipment. And I had, you know, once in a while you hit the old crusty farmer says, I've been farming for 40 years. What are you going to tell me? <laughs> and I says, well, I've been working with 50 farmers a year for the last five years. 50 times five is 250. I've got 250 different experiences there. I says, it may not fit your condition, but I might be able to bracket you from one side or the other. Well, I sometimes think you could have two successful no-tillers across the road from one another using different systems or doing something a little different. And if you had them switch systems, they might both fail. That, that's correct. Uh, when it comes to uh, no-tillers, um, a good friend of mine used to say, it's like uh, there's a lot of people say they no-till, but they don't no-till properly. He was slightly overweight. He just patted his big belly. He says, you know, I'm dieting, and it's obvious that I can't <laughs> diet properly. Right. It's the same thing. We've got to put our mind to it and make it work, and that's where the systems approach comes in. Right. If we just park the tillage equipment and plant, uh, yes, it's no-till. It may or may not work. Uh, it may work two years in a row. The third year, it doesn't. And uh, I would usually like to tell producers it's that third year is when you figure out what you were doing wrong. Right. Uh, the first year might be lucky. The second year, it may or may not work. Uh, but the third year, you definitely are learning and figuring out what to fix. Yeah. And that's when you get past that about fifth year uh, when the soil really starts to improve and your management skills start to improve. Most of people never go back. Yeah, that happened to me in the early 70s. People used to say to me, well, if I know till I think after four years, I'm going to have to plow. And I used to say to them, go ahead, go ahead and try it and see what happens. Well, they'd get the fourth year and most of them never plowed. 
That's right. And it's, again, in that uh, first year, you know, you're excited to try something new. The second year, you're going like, hey, can I keep the landlord happy or the banker happy or the wife happy? And it's that third year is when you start to figure stuff out. And like, say, the fourth and fifth year, it's like, hey, this is good stuff. Right. A minute or two ago, you mentioned Ecofile, which was pretty popular out in the western Nebraska. I remember working with Charlie Fenster on some things. Tell our listeners what Ecofile was and what's happened to it since then. Well, Ecofile, uh, well, the term is a shortened up of economical fallow. And it's because we had producers in western conditions, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, so on, where they didn't get enough rainfall to raise uh, row crops of corn and soybeans. The rainfall pattern, snowfall pattern, was a lot of wheat production because we had the winter precip and we couldn't have enough water to make it through the summer heat. And so we had a lot of wheat fallow. Grow wheat this year, till it next year, trying to serve your soil moisture, save it for next year's crop. Well, people soon discovered there is no soil we have around that will store two years of precipitation. Sure. So right away we were losing out because we couldn't store all the off-season precip. Then when it came to doing the tillage to keep weeds down and keep the soil supposedly in loose condition so the water would soak in, again, we lost more soil moisture, soil would crust and run off. And it turned out fallow was a losing proposition. And a lot of people said, well, the red ink on the balance sheet, can we make it less bright red? <laughs> well, when it came to equal fallow, the economical fallow was – uh, herbicides are being introduced uh, at right. that time, uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And they said, so rather than do tillage to control the weeds, why don't we use uh, some herbicides? Uh, they were pretty simple ones at that time, and we can spray the weeds, but more important, leave the residue on top, not stir the soil, not dry it out, not destroy the soil structure. And it was more of a moisture conservation thing that fallow period. Well, when they started doing that rather than tillage, they says, you know what? If I let it set for a few months and pick up precip, I can't store two years' worth, but I can store a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so they would plant corn or milo or prozo millet or some lower water use crop, grow a row crop. And then when that was harvested in the fall, they would do that chemical fallowing and then plant wheat again the next fall. And so it turned out we were getting two crops in three years rather than one crop every two years. And so right away, their income went up because they were spending less time doing tillage. Their income went up because they were, uh, were spending or raising two crops in three years rather than one crop every two. So the economical fallow was a savior for them. The thing that uh, they didn't realize at that time, but we realize a lot more now, it helped a lot on soil health, soil diversity, simply because it was no longer continuous wheat. Sure. It was now bringing other crops in the rotation. And with that in mind, Ecofellow has even transitioned more yet that it might be that after wheat harvest, they put in a cover crop that winter kills, the next spring they can plant their milo. And what they had was now the wheat, the cash crop, plus the cover crop to help build soil health even more yet. Uh, so, again, uh, it's been changing. Uh, another thing that helps it change is we've learned so much more about diversity in the field, learned more about weed control, learned more about uh, nutrient cycling. And, again, by getting away from that uh, continuous wheat with tillage, uh, they've really built their soils up. And one of the worst things uh, that I heard when I first got started, they says, well, you have to rest the soil. The rest of the soil. And that turns out it's the worst thing you can do because we're not feeding the soil. So 
no-till helped a lot of people even move away from Ecofallow, right? It changed Ecofallow that a lot of times the Ecofallow system was they did corn or milo or millet or whatever was planted no-till, but they didn't have a drill that could seed wheat no-till because mm-hmm. uh, it came out of a conventional till system. So they would spray uh, maybe twice and then do tillage right before planting wheat. Well, before they used uh, the residual herbicide sprays, they might have been doing tillage uh, once a month for that fallow period. And so, again, the equifallow saved them money because they were no longer doing the tillage. Again, going back to our grant for energy, they were saving plenty of energy. Well, then people would argue that there's energy in that herbicide you're using. Well, it turns out uh, at that time, not too many people were using herbicide. I would agree. Today, mm-hmm. so many people are using herbicide anyway. You're just trading a dollar from one pocket to the other pocket. Uh, so, again, when it comes to money and energy, it may be a toss-up. When it comes to the moisture savings, soil health, reduced erosion, definitely no-tills the winter. Yeah. Early on, you got involved. You built some rainfall simulators. Tell me about that. Well, originally, my uh, first grant when I first got hired on from the university was a grant to study the tillage systems and erosion. We used to borrow a rainfall simulator. They call it a rotating boom rainfall simulator. Sure. And for your listeners out there, that uh, it looks like a merry-go-round. It's a 50-foot circle. Uh, there's a trailer in the middle, and these arms rotate, and there's uh, 10 arms with nozzles spraying downward. And that rotating boom rainfall simulator, we can take it out to the field, and you can have a plot on each side. The plots then were like 10 feet wide by 35 feet long. We could actually measure erosion in the field. Well, at that time, there were about, only about six of those rainfall simulators in the world. We used to borrow one from ARS over at Iowa State, and uh, it was originally invented actually at Nebraska by Norris Swanson back in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And like I say, it was a fairly expensive tool, fairly directed research. Well, after using their rainfall simulator to measure erosion, we did a variety of conditions, variety of slopes, variety of crop residues, a three-year grant I had. We landed another grant where we did some more evaluating soybean production and erosion and contour farming, things like this. We says we can see a difference standing down at the bottom of the plot doing the research, filling the data sheet out. Why not take this to farmers and show them what it is? Mm-hmm. And so, again, this grant we had using the energy overcharge funds, uh, we took some of that money and built a rainfall simulator. We sort of patterned after the ARS version. And I was the first one in the country that I know about that actually built one for the sake of extension for demonstration purposes. And, again, we would take it out on that uh, five-year grant. We would do, oh, 10 to 20 demonstrations a year across the state just to show people how – leaving residue reduced erosion. Uh, We did not do a no-till versus a till comparison because usually we pulled into a farmer's field, say, after wheat harvest and dissed or plowed the entire area, then simply added some residue back on top. And again, back in the middle 80s, that was the term. Everyone was talking about conservation tillage leave at least 30% residue cover. Well, the rainfall seminar was really easy then to have a plot on one side with no cover, another plot with 30% cover. Well, we got smart. We put borders down the middle and have four plots, only five feet wide rather than 10 feet wide. And now I could do zero, 30, 50, and 100, for instance, percent cover. And there was visual differences that were huge. 
Now, you can imagine taking this thing down the road, setting it up, the whole thing, uh, two people knowing what they're doing. It'd take them three to four hours to set it up. It took them a while to do the demonstration. It took two hours to pack up to go to the next <laughs> fight. I got tired of doing that. <laughs> now, what was surprising was uh, Hans Koch was with K-State University at the time. Sure. As that grant was ending, Hans brought our rainfall similar, and he drug it across Kansas and did about 20 demonstrations. Hans says, this is pretty neat, and they built one down at K-State. Mm. And he did that for a number of years. Well, about that time, I say, I was tired of dragging around. I says, why don't I take a single nozzle, the same nozzle, and put it on a little boom to oscillate, and I thought like a windshield wiper. Turns out I found a little motor that was cheaper than a windshield wiper. And let's design it to run on 12 volts. I can take it anywhere and take a little 12-volt pump and now I'm doing greenhouse flats is what I started with, just five little trays laying on a wooden frame. And now I could do the same demonstration with a half hour set up and 15 minutes tear down, uh, rather than 120 gallons a minute water or four gallons a minute water. And it was great for demonstrations. Did that for a number of years. Again, K-State, uh, we had the Clyde Murmurs from NRCS came up, took all the measurements off of mine, built the simulator to do the same thing down there because the Kansas group liked the same demonstration. And that's where Bud Davis said, and that time he was a state conservationist for NRCS. Right. Hey, this is pretty neat. Bud started building them. Uh -huh. He's never given me any royalties, but I can always give him a hard time about it. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's good. You got to the 90s, and you got more involved in another project that looked at nitrogen use, irrigation efficiency, reduced pesticide use, even manure. Tell me about that. Well, that was uh, interesting. Uh, my early days working at the University of Nebraska, some people laugh a little bit when they think about it. Others say, really, you did? Uh, the University of Nebraska, we got what we call salaried hardline people. They are in state funds. And we got other people who work on grants. And I had the blessing, actually, to be on grants. What that meant is every couple of years, you had a different group funding you. You had a different emphasis. So you could look at something different. In 1978, I started on grants and my master's work. Well, there in the 90s, uh, a lot of people says, well, erosion is taken care of. Uh, 85 Farm Bill, Food Security Act. People are using conservation tillage now. We don't have to worry about erosion. Let's look at water quality. Mm -hmm. And so we landed a grant as one of the Federal Hydrologic Unit Area Grants, FHUA, and we were looking at how do we reduce nitrates in the groundwater in a specific targeted area where the city well fields were located. And uh, at that time, as we still have today, there's concerns on what is in our water. And so we were looking at uh, nitrate problem, looking at better nitrogen management, better uh, manure management. Manure is a form of nitrogen. In that area, we had quite a few livestock operations. And just as a, what I would call a worst case example, but he learned fast, we had a dairy producer who put all his manure on the 80 acres right next to the milking barn. That's a lot of manure there every year. He was raising irrigated corn. He was also putting on uh, 250 units of nitrogen because he's raising irrigated corn. Well, working with him, I'd go out after harvest and sample, and he still had like 275 units of N in a three-foot soil profile. Wow. Well, the off-season precip takes that on down to the groundwater. And so right away we said, let's not put any anhydrous ammonia on. We don't need extra nitrogen. You've got enough there from your livestock manure. And again, he learned real fast. He needed to manage manure better. 
And one of the things we even did was uh, he got some cost share dollars from FSA, put in an underground pipeline to take his manure to another field about three-quarter mile away. And so he learned to manage manure by putting it on more acres. He learned to cut his nitrogen and give manure credit. And so like I say, it was sort of a worst case with a good learning experience for him. But we had a lot of producers where it was just uh, take a soil sample and put on what the soil needs and what the crop needs rather than what the co-op recommends. And uh, the, some of the co-ops out there are really into the nitrogen management, nutrient management of all types. Others are into sales. And I would rather see a co-op gain trust by providing service, help reduce risk to the environment, and then do the sales. Right. And that's where a lot of co-ops have figured that out. A lot of the crop consultants have figured that out. Let's provide service as well as product. And so that was an interesting project. The engineering side of it, uh, the nitrogen management sort of agronomy, but again, with my uh, systems approach that was working in, the engineering side was I was looking more at the irrigation water management. Again, a person who is irrigating too much is sending excess water down through the soil profile. Any excess water going through the soil profile takes excess nitrogen down, down to the groundwater. And so we worked a lot on teaching people how to do proper irrigation scheduling. And one of the quickest ways we did is we simply put a water meter on the irrigation well they could keep track of how many gallons they pumped, how much water they actually put on. And we had one producer who thought he was doing everything right. He was on a furrow irrigation system. Basically, you flood the field. Sure. And he thought he was doing everything right. When he read his water meter, it turned out he put on almost 10 inches of water on one irrigation. <laughs> wow. Well, 10 inches of water sends a lot of nitrogen down through to the groundwater. Right. And uh, then we started looking at, well, if furrow irrigation is that inefficient, let's convert to pivot irrigation. Uh, now, rather than 10 inches of water, you put on inch of water. Uh, again, now we're not going to leach water down through. Uh, some people went a step further, went to subsurface drip irrigation. To put it even down in the root zone and not even get the top wet, we leach even less yet if we don't take it out of the top zone of the soil. Mm-hmm. So, again, it was a uh, water quality issue driven by groundwater. But, again, one of the federal hydrologic unit areas where the feds were getting in front of potential problems by let's do education, let's fund grants that give education rather than force regulation. And we're proud to say that in that area, we have decreased the groundwater nitrate problems. Uh, the city there is really... Uh, proud of the fact they didn't have to go out and drill a whole bunch of new wells. Right. But it didn't happen overnight. Uh, it took a few years for people to adopt it. It took a few years to flush the nitrate through that we put down in the soil, you know, 10, 20 years ago. A year ago, I was on a dairy farm in Ohio, and they were kind of like what you were talking about. They had a field next to the barn that had gotten all kinds of manure for years, but now they were in the cover crops. And the thing that was unique here is they were using a drag line to move their manure quite a ways away. But the thing that most interested me was they were knocking down their cover crop with that drag line instead of coming across with a roller. And actually, I saw it right just after they planted, and the drag line was doing a hell of a job of uh, knocking down that cover crop. Oh, yes, it definitely does. Uh, Again, on my irrigated farm experience growing up northeast Nebraska, we had a traveling gun sprinkler, which was basically the same thing, a drag line as a sprinkler moved across the field. And uh, you had to have that thing exactly set between the rows or else 
you would knock down a lot of corn. Well, I can see the same thing in the cover crop. Right. But again, when it comes to cover crops, uh, when I mentioned earlier on no-till, I thought it was a planter. Then I learned no, it's weeds, no, it's fertility, no, it's residues, the system. Uh, cover crops, again, are part of the system. Let's take those nutrients that would have been leached away, grow them in a biological form, keep them there on the soil surface. Uh, we can knock them over or spray them out or whatever. And as they break down, they release the nutrients back in the system. But the good news is they release it back in the system when the next crop is growing, when they can use it. The over-irrigation of the off-season precip took it out of the root zone. We couldn't recover it. And now I should say that, but there are a few people who have put in some deep-rooted cover crops or some perennials and grow it there for two or three years. They are recovering some of that stuff from down deeper, trying to bring it back to the soil surface. So, again, the cover crops are still learning on that, but it's a wide-open field to help feed the soil system and help reduce risk to the environment. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, we used to plant cover crops. We'd plant clover in September, and then then we got away from using cover crops for a long, long time. Well, actually, one of my first experiences working for Dad, uh, I said I was his favorite for doing field work, uh, before he would even let me drive the tractor. I would ride in an old wagon with an N-gate seeder on it, seeding <laughs> oats. Because, yeah. again, northeast Nebraska, we had oats. And it was two shovels of oats and a coffee can full of hairy vetch into that hey. N-gate seeder. When the oats got combined off, the hairy vetch took off. Hairy vetch uh, was a cover there using water, but more importantly, fixing nitrogen for his corn crop for next year. And, again, it was a step backward in time when I think about that, but it's a step forward in time when we start thinking about what we're doing now. Right. Reverting to growing our own where you're looking at a living root or looking at letting nature do the work for us. We'll get back to Frank and Paul in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Tilt planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Paul Yasa, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. We had Carlos Crevetto as a speaker at one of the no-till conferences uh, many years ago, and he started no-tilling in 1978 in Chile. And that over uh, the time since then, he has used less fertilizer while increasing soil quality and yields. But what's most important here is he's probably no-tilling on some of the worst ground you'll find any place on the planet. He maintains that no-till must be permanent, which means always leaving 100% of the residue on the soil surface. And he's had yields with continuous no-till corn has been as high as 316 bushels per acre along with 170 bushel no-till wheat yields, all done on what he says is some of the worst soils you'll find any place in the world. Let's get back to the program now as Paul Yasa explains how adding wheat to a corn and soybean rotation can boost the bottom line. So you were using cover crops and we're getting deep channels and earthworms and everything. Is this 
going to lead us to nutrients running off in the tile lines? Well, that comes down to nutrients running off in the tile lines. Uh, yes, it could be a problem if I'm a corn soybean producer with tile and I've got uh, more stuff out there now, it can disappear on me. And that's, again, where we need the cover crop to grow and grow it in a biological form up on the soil surface. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the tiles are getting cleaned up, uh, the tile line discharge, simply by growing something there and not sending it out the tile line. Now, again, I grew up in Nebraska where ours is more concerned about getting it down to the groundwater with long-term leaching. Sure. Uh, as we go into tiled areas, uh, that long-term leaching doesn't occur because it disappears out the tile first. And that's where it's a challenge for some people because they say, well, I don't want extra things growing out there. Well, if they've got excess water that's going out of the tile line anyway, why not grow it in a biological form, get some sunlight and carbon dioxide and growing through that plant to help build the soil? and use the water rather than lose it. And so for me, a tile line can be replaced by actively growing roots and actively growing plants to use that water. Now, I'm not gonna tear out tile, I'm not gonna quit using the tile if it's there, but if I got a field that's uh, historically wet, maybe the cover crop is better dewatered than spending money on tile. Mm -hmm. You mentioned drip irrigation earlier. Is it gonna catch on among no-tillers? When it comes to drip irrigation, uh, we're simply emitting the water below the soil surface, uh, buried uh, pipelines with, basically it's a leaky hose is what it is. Right, right. And it's a controlled leakage, so you get it uniformity. Uh, when it comes to no-tillers, uh, I see less and less no-tillers interested in drip irrigation. When it first came out, the salesmen were real high on, well, the drip irrigation, you don't get the canopy wet, so it reduces diseases. Uh, you don't get the surface wet, so it reduces evaporation. Uh, you, and when you start listening to all the reasons they want to use it, it is more for the monocropper, high-value crop, one with disease problems. And if I was a tomato producer, for instance, I would love drip irrigation. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to long-term no-tellers who are using crop rotation to manage diseases and insects, things like that, they have residue there, so they don't have raindrop splash splashing disease disease and knock them up on the crop. Uh, they have uh, the moisture conservation of the mulch there, so there's less evaporation. Everything there that a no-tiller gains sort of offsets the sales pitch of why I need drip irrigation. And so we're actually seeing less and less producers in no-till considering drip irrigation. Okay, that's interesting. Now, and uh, a lot of people, though, it depends on where you're at and, again, what's your value of your crop. What we've learned with the improved soil structures no-till, uh, I can store more soil water, and I can carry myself to longer to the next rain. And actually, in Nebraska, we've got some guys who are quitting irrigation as they switch to no-till because they can make more money on dry land with crop rotation of the water they store and not pay the expense of irrigation. Mm -hmm. And again, when you start thinking about drip irrigation, how expensive it is, uh, some of the drip irrigation systems cost between $1,000 and $5,000 an acre, depending on what all you're putting in. Well, again, on a high-value tomato crop, that's fine. On corn with uh, having trouble making ends meet now at these current prices, I can't afford to do that. Right. Well, we've been talking crop rotation here for a little bit, and now we're are, are people who are on a corn-soybean no-till rotation okay, or they got to diversify that rotation? Well, I, I like to say corn-soybeans are not a rotation. It's an oscillation. It just goes back and <laughs> forth. Yeah. 
Now, the oscillation itself still does help because I got a summer grass and a summer broadleaf, and so that helps reduce pests, helps reduce diseases. It gives a yield boost to both simply because they do that uh, oscillation. But when it comes to a building the soil, when it comes to uh, get, trying to get all the benefits out there, I like to have some cool season crops in there too, the cool season grass, cool season broadleaf, or the overwintering, whichever. And so now I'll start putting three, four or five crops or two or three crops with cover crops to get those other diversity in there. And then it helps build that soil system and make it a lot more profitable. And we've got a lot of producers who used to be corn soybeans who have now switched to corn soybeans and wheat and then put a cover crop in after the wheat. Uh, sure. It covers maybe only once every three years, but by having that cool season grass of wheat in there, it gives them an opportunity to attack the warm season weeds because now i got a different growing season out there. With the cover crop out there, it gives me some extra biodiversity. It may give me some grazing opportunity. It uh, may simply give me a feed the soil opportunity. And so, again, I like the diversity of rotation with cover crops. Uh, corn soybeans with a cover crop after corn and soybean harvest. If I'm far enough south, I get enough rainfall. Uh, that's a good system as well. As I go further north through shorter growing season, it may or may not work as well. But that's where people are now looking at companion crops or aerial seeding before harvest, trying to get a longer season than cover crop. But again, a lot of people get afraid of the water management. I say it's a three-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, three. Most people think of two edges on a sword. To me, the three edges are the guys with too much water to store, and they're sending out the tile line anyway. Cover crop's a no-brainer. The guys in western conditions that don't get enough rainfall, and they're worried about uh, cover crop using too much water, it's amazing that a cover crop grown up will use a little bit of water, but get the sun and wind off the soil surface to reduce the evaporation. We have found there are some low water use cover crops that use less water than we used to lose to evaporation on a bare soil. And so that's my second edge. Now the third edge, which again, the three edge sort of is a little weird, <laughs> is for me here in eastern Nebraska. Uh, when it comes to harvest in the fall, I don't know if next spring is going to be hot and dry or is it going to be cold and wet. Do I want a cover crop there growing to dewater? Do I need a cover crop there to keep the sun and wind off the soil surface, but I don't want it to dewater? And that third edge makes it a little harder to decide what to do. Mm. And so, again, you have to really trust your weatherman, trust the long-term forecast. Well, i rather trust the soil. I'm to the point I like cover crops anyway. Well, it seems to me that when corn and soybean prices were higher than they are now, wheat wasn't very good and the economics for a lot of people, they said we couldn't afford to grow wheat. And some people in Ohio and the Eastern Corn Belt dumped wheat out of their uh, rotation because of that. But now that everything is cheap, maybe it makes more sense to get back into wheat. Well, the corn soybean rotation uh, became established because on a relative profit potential, right. corn, let's call it a one, soybeans is a one, they're about the same. And we know there's some price variability, some fluctuation year to year, some yield variability, but again, a one. Wheat, even if you're a real good wheat producer, it might be only a three-quarter of sure. what a corn or soybean could be. Well, again, if I'm growing only one crop a year, why would I grow wheat? Mm -hmm. Now, a uh, short-season forage uh, for hay uh, might be only a half. Again, why would I grow that? I'm going to plow up the pasture. I'm going to plant corn soybeans. Well, well now I have wheat, but I got time to put in a short season forage. 
three quarter from the wheat plus one half from that short season forage is now one and a quarter. The 1.25 beats the one of corn or the one of soybeans. So now putting wheat in the rotation and then you doing something after wheat harvest makes sense economically. Now, when it comes to soil health, it even makes more sense to get that living root back in the system. Now, I'm looking at soil health myself. Uh, some people look at the short season forage as grazing. Others look at, as, look at it to actually hay it off and sell it. But again, that's where the three quarter plus the half make some money. Mm -hmm. For me, I leave my cover crop out there. I don't graze it. I don't sell it. So my wheat at three quarter is now plus the soil health improvement of the cover crop. And that soil health improvement, uh, just growing that cover crop once every three years in that rotation is actually bringing my corn and soybean yields up to the point where when I look across the life of the rotation, wheat's not costing me money mm -hmm. on the long term. Yes, this year, the farm program or whatever, wheat may lose me money, but the low prices, corn and soybeans may be losing me money too. One of the things that's interesting is there are not a lot of people, but there are some people that are 100% continuous corn. And they're, you know, university research pretty much shows that your yields are going to go down, but producers still do it. But I think one of the benefits to cover crops, even if they're continuous corn, by sticking a cover crop in there, they come out ahead. They do, uh, just by getting that uh, diversity in there. Now, a lot of people, when they look at, say, continuous corn, or in the olden days, was con the wheat fallow, continuous wheat out west, or whatever. When it comes to a monocrop, uh, if you can manage the pests, the problems, the diseases, and so on, you know, that's what drives the yields down. That's where we get the rotation benefit, because the problems sort of manage themselves. But if I can manage all those, and actually I have a soil, for instance, that is favorable for growing corn, and I can manage the problems, and I exploit that soil, maybe I can grow continuous corn. Mm -hmm. And if we look at a lot of our high-yield producers out there in the corn contest that win, some of those are on continuous corn. What they've done is they build up the positives, the microbes that help corn. They build up the residue to have more carbon. They build up the soil to raise better corn, and they manage the problems. They can raise better corn. Now, that takes a high level of management, and you talk to some of those high-yield contest winners. They're not doing that on the rest of the farm because they can't afford to. <laughs> <laughs> and again, uh, I don't look so much at the yield. I look more at the systems approach. And the systems approach to me is uh, more than just the uh, income coming off the crop. It is preserving the soil for the future. It's uh, the systems approach on rotation diversity and building that soil. And again, uh, for me, I've been working on farm that's owned by the university. It's going to stay in the university system. I want to preserve it and build it. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm a landowner out there and I own the land, I'm going to pass it on to the grandkids, I'd probably think the same way. If I'm a tenant and I'm renting the land and I don't know if I'm going to rent it next year, why not exploit it for this year? Right. And that's part of the thinking that's uh, actually created some of the problems when it comes to the environment and soil health is we're thinking short term, not long term. Yeah. I've always looked at you as a practical guy. We've had you on the National Road Tillage Conference program several times, and you always got practical advice that somebody can go home and, and use. You've been very good at that. And I, I saw you had a stat, and some of the material sent me that in eight years you'd made 760 presentations for 51,000 attendees. I mean, that's just remarkable. You, you seem to be a guy that wants to get out and talk to people and walk the fields. Well, just like 
you know, I enjoy talking to you just just share it. But that's one of the things that uh, farmers have never been good at is sharing the successes. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, we got a lot of people who share the negatives, uh, whether it be the press or the farmer himself complaining. Uh, we got to share our successes as well. But again, the fact that I've been doing it hands-on in the field myself is what adds a lot of credibility to my educational presentations. And when I show a picture, it's usually I took the picture or I know who did and why and yeah. so on. And that uh, the hands-on is very valuable. And that's where we really learn a lot. And so, yeah, those uh, presentations, a lot of people uh, nicknamed me the Road Warrior. Uh, <laughs> I admit uh, I'm slowing down now, <laughs> not doing as many uh, here across the state uh, in particular. But what's happened is I'm spilling out into other states and even into other countries. And, again, it just depends on where you're at, what is adoption rate. Uh, there's some states I've never done a meeting in because they're ahead of us. Right. There's other states that are just starting to call me now because they say, we got to get going. And so, again, it's uh, the sharing the information. Uh, there's two little stories I have related to that. Is One is I used to have in my introductory bio, if there's a mistake to be made with no-till, I've made it myself or I've seen it done. But more importantly, I've learned from those mistakes. The other one was on our – I've always been the type, like you said, down-to-earth, practical. I don't run out and buy the latest toy because it's the latest toy. Uh, too many people get caught up in that. I like to say if it's not broke, don't need to fix it. Well, I improve on things. We got a international early riser planner back in 1981 when they first came out. Sure. And I say international because it was before case international right. merger. We were in that planner for no-till for 28 years. And I had an administrator come and say, why aren't you going to replace that planner? I said, why? It's still working. It's one of the better planners out there. He says, yes, but you're showing old equipment. You should be showing the latest and greatest. And I says, that's not what a farmer needs. He needs to know what works and how to make his work because everybody doesn't have the deepest pockets to buy the latest and greatest. Right, right. And I was sort of in that opinion, too, when it comes to attachments. You know, I try the attachments. Uh, if they work, I would try to figure out why they work. If they don't work, try to figure out why they don't work. And that's what I share in my presentation is, you know, why does a row cleaner work on this soil and this rainfall, but it doesn't work so well here? You know, again, the systems approach is not just that piece of equipment. is how was it used. Right. Well, I saw the other day that you're going to Ohio for the Ohio No-Till Council coming up in a couple of months. And they said you were going to bring your pickup truck, which has got a whole bunch of attachments in it. Tell me about your truck or these attachments. Well, actually, he exaggerated a little bit when he said a truckload of attachments. What I've got is I've got a couple of, uh, well, it's old plastic milk cases because they're easy to carry. Mm -hmm. But in there, I can throw in different things like a Keaton seed firmer, Shaffert rebounder, a Thompson closing wheel, a Martin closing wheel. Uh, You know, I've got, uh, oh, I've never counted up. I probably carry about 50 different things. Mm -hmm. When I first started doing this, I had uh, seven different colder types in there. Okay. A bubble colder, a wavy colder, a ripple colder, a smooth colder, you know, so on. Right. I quit carrying the colders. Uh, industry has given us no-till without the need for the colder. I uh, used to carry about five different uh, row cleaners. Uh, I don't carry any row cleaners now. Industry is again, giving us uh, the ability to plant without the need for the row cleaner, and we're seeing a lot of benefit of not clearing residue away. Mm-hmm. And so my attachments I bring is to talk more about why you need the attachment or why you don't need the attachment. 
sometimes a, a local vendor salesman or exhibitor gets upset with what I say, and other times they say, that's a good idea. I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even had a couple of company reps after my presentation give me one of theirs off their display just so I could talk about it. Sure. Um, and again, when it comes to sharing the information, how it's used, you know, to me, it's to help the farmer succeed to that uh, equipment dealer who just gave me something is to help him provide service. Right. And so it's a win-win by bringing these attachments. Now, the bad news is, like, once in a while, like, well, I want to come to your national no-till conference. Uh, that no-tillage conference, when I fly in, it's pretty hard to carry a couple of milk crates full sure. of steel. <laughs> right, right. And uh, I have, uh, for a couple of my overseas trips, I have packed up a, uh, like, a photocopier paper box full of attachments and ship it to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one way to bring in some attachments. But uh, today with digital photos and PowerPoint presentations, it's pretty easy to show them yeah. that attachment in the field rather than just holding the piece of steel up in the air. You got some uh, recommendations or some guidelines on seating depth and how you ought to try seating deeper sometimes. Tell me about this. Well, when I first started with the university, there was an old agronomist who – he just sort of muttered under his breath. He says, people plant their soybeans too thick, their corn too thin. Uh, they don't plant their wheat deep enough. And when he started muttering on about all these things he's observed like, agronomically, I started looking at it from the equipment side. Mm-hmm. And when it came to equipment performance, I found out that if I run the planter a little bit deeper, in Nebraska we have some springs where uh, – it may not rain for three weeks after planting. If I plant shallow, that seed zone dries out, the crop's not going to grow. Well, let's put some extra down pressure springs on, some extra weight on, let's put the seed deeper, solve the engineering problem to get the seed deeper. I get it in a bit more uniform soil moisture, more uniform soil temperature. I get a more uniform stand. The agronomic growth gives me a better yield. And now, again, the systems approach, thinking multiple steps together, I'm planting my corn deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I have to preface that in a well-structured, continuous no-till soil. And what happens is, as I build soil structure, uh, problems go away with planting too deep uh, compared to a till soil. And a till soil, if you plant it deep uh, and the soil crusted on top, you may not get through the crust. Well, residue on top, I don't crust. Uh, a till soil might have a tillage pan down there at six inches, and if I plant it three inches deep, uh, the zone's going to be saturated, the seed's going to drown. Again, a well-structured soil, it drains away. It's not in the saturated zone. As the soil moisture excess drains away, the soil warms up. I'm not planting into cold, wet soil. I'm planting into warm, moist soil. And so, again, a long-term continuous no-till, I plant deeper. Mm-hmm. Now, I tell farmers, don't go out and plant three and a half inches deep in your corn or two and a half inches deep in your soybeans like I do. Do it plant half inch deeper than you did this year for two rounds. Flag it. Sure. Follow it through to yield. I'll bet you those two rounds will yield better, and you'll plant the entire farm that half inch deeper. <laughs> well, do it again. Yeah. And I've had some farmers who started an inch and a half corn planting depth and half inch a year, and they're down to three inches deep now in a couple of years. Well, the advantage is over a couple of years, their soil structure built continuous no-till such that they can afford to go deeper. Now, deeper I get a better root system, better standability, a better nutrient uptake, better water uptake. Uh, so, again, so a lot of the problems tend to go away with that better root system. Plant deeper gives that to me. Systems approach. Uh, let's talk about residue management starting in the fall. 
Well, starting in the fall, uh, typically, again, from corn soybean country, that's where we do start, is harvest time, is when I'm prepping my field for next year or next crop or whatever. That residue management is very important. It used to be we only thought about getting our grain out of the field today. I think about, is it going to create a problem next spring? Uh, so residue spreading behind the combine is very important. Uh, when I first started uh, helping Dad on the farm, I said we raised oats. Well, we put the oats out in a windrow because we bailed up the straw. Sure. Well, a windrow uh, for baling is great. A windrow for planting into next year it will plug anything. It will plug even your disc for the guys doing tillage. And so we learned to put residue spreaders on. Uh, first, it was a bat spreader through the straw out there. And if we had a little four-row head, uh, then that bat spreader worked pretty good. But today we got some 12- and 16-row heads. That bat spreader may or may not do it. Uh, so we said, let's put choppers on it. The chopper will throw the straw. It'll chew it up, make it smaller. It'll break down faster. Uh, the chopper was a great improvement. But, again, it wasn't throwing it far enough in most cases. And unfortunately, we as consumers did not push industry hard enough to improve that. Uh, the Canadians, the Europeans did far more than we did. And there are a lot better straw distribution systems coming out of Europe and even out of Canada. U.S. manufacturers finally jumped on the bandwagon probably 10, 15 years ago. We're doing better spreading that residue at harvest. And it comes down to I want uniform residue spread, so uniform soil moisture, uniform soil temperature come next year. Too often I've seen where there's the windrow of residue, and if you're in a, or maybe not a windrow of residue, but maybe I spread the residue only 20 feet wide on a 40-foot head. And I'm in Illinois, that 20 feet is going to stay cold and wet, and the other where there's less residue will be dry, and you got two different growth patterns in the field. You go out to Colorado, it's exactly the opposite. Where there isn't residue, it dries out and the crop's not growing. Where there is residue, it conserves moisture and the crop is growing. Well, spreading the residue helps both of those producers out. Uh, getting a uniformity every day of the year, I like to say. You know, people think about the uniform picket stand of corn growing. No, I want uniformity of the residue. I want uniform growth when the crop is growing. I want uniform herbicide application, uniformity of every day when I'm on the field. So at Combine, we've seen major changes. We've seen better straw distribution, better chaff distribution. We're seeing better processing in the corn head itself as we bring the corn in. We see the stripper headers and small grain harvest. So let's leave the residue standing, attached. We don't have to spread it. Let's just take the kernels off or the berries sure. off the top of the plant. And so industry is changing as we as consumers ask for that. And so, again, that's what we need to think about is how are we – going to harvest or whatever our step we're doing today, how are we going to do that so we don't screw up tomorrow? Right. And that screw up tomorrow, like I say, it could be we didn't spread the residue. I can't plant through it next year. It could be I'm knifing in my manure and my injection rig is does too much soil disturbance, not smooth enough to plant. Well, again, industry has responded to give us better injection tools for our manure. Uh, again, everything affects the next step. And I can't bring the eraser out to fix it. And in the olden days, the eraser was one more pass with a tillage tool, yeah. whether it be the disc or whatever. But, again, that tended to equalize things. It fixed the problem, but it made other problems. Yeah. One of the things you were talking about is the differences between producers in different areas. And I remember at the very first National No-Tillage Conference, which was in 1993 in Indianapolis, we had Dwayne Beck from South Dakota speak. And I, to this day, 28 years later, I remember the comment he made. 
He said, you guys in Ohio no-till to get rid of the excess water, and out in South Dakota, we no-till to keep every drop that falls. That's very true. Uh, when it comes to, at that time, we didn't understand everything going on when it comes to soil health like we do today. Mm -hmm. And that no-till at that time, people thought, well, I'm not tilling the soil and that's the benefit. No, it's the fact that I'm building soil structure. The excess water can drain away the producer in Ohio. The residue on top, the excess water stays in the soil, doesn't evaporate away for delaying. But again, it's that soil health component that we didn't understand then. Right. Uh, we're just starting to understand it. And again, that's where cover crops and everything that we're learning new now. I laugh a little bit. Grandpa did some of those things, had the cover crops, <laughs> right, left right. the residue out there. He spread the manure in the poorest pot, spot of the field because he knew that spot of the field needed help. Yeah. You know, people can say that precision ag is new, site-specific management is new. No, that's where that load of manure went because we knew that spot needed site-specific management. Right. And so, again, it's sort of a giant circle if we just think about what's going on. Well, you've done a lot of foreign travel uh what have you gained from this? Uh, are, are we way ahead of everybody else in the world, or are they doing some things we ought to be doing, or what? Well, when it comes to are we way ahead, it depends on who the we is. <laughs> and I say that because uh, a lot of uh, my foreign travels have been helped them bring up production so they can feed themselves. They can get more income. They can buy our products. I had some friends of mine criticize, say, why are you teaching them how to raise crops? Shouldn't they just buy ours? Well, yeah. if they have no income, they can't buy ours. Mm -hmm. And so from that standpoint, yes, we're way ahead on let's produce that crop. Uh, there's some that I've worked with. There's one group in particular. Their idea of being way ahead was I'm a capitalist. I farm mm -hmm. a, a million acres today, and our 10-year goal is we're going to be farming five million acres. Go from mm -hmm. one million to five acres million in five years or five to ten years and i'm like no that's copying the capitalist american or capitalist from any country that's not thinking about uh feeding yourself not not thinking about systems approach not thinking about the environment and in fact they were heavy tillage intensive with four-wheel drive equipment doing a lot of tillage and a lot of uh, trying to grow, expand cropland, but they were not growing and expanding their yields because they were destroying their soil. Mm -hmm. That's when I came in because they says we need to look at no-till. Sure. Well, it turns out that they still weren't thinking long-term. They were thinking short-term. They wanted to make money this year, the capitalist thinking. And so that's one of the things I've hit is uh, what are they trying to achieve? Are they trying to just basic food for themselves and survival, or are they trying to be a capitalist? Uh, mm -hmm. There's a huge difference in education. The other one I hit that was interesting that uh, you don't think about here in the United States is that when it comes to a lot of those areas, uh, back in the Bible, Ruth and Boaz, after wheat harvest or whatever small grain they harvested, uh, Boaz put the grain away in his granaries. Ruth was gleaning the field, picking up what was left. It was society was surviving on whatever they could find. There are still some areas out there that that happens. Uh, a group I worked with in China uh, about 15 years ago, uh, they were talking about no-tilling. And they I went over there to teach them how to no-till. And they had a 10-foot high fence all the way around their farm. And I'm like, what's the that fence for? He says, well, when we're done harvesting our crop, all the local villagers come out 
and rake up all the residue to take back either to burn hmm. in their homes to cook and heat or to feed their livestock. Right. They had to put up the fence just to keep the residue because no-till without residue doesn't work because I'm not protecting the soil. And again, when you start thinking about society changes, society differences, uh, you know, I got to educate the producer how to raise the crop, but then I also got to work with what constraints he has. Uh, you yeah. know, does his residue disappear? Um, and another one there was this producer was harvesting the residue. He was taking it away to feed his livestock, but at least he was bringing the livestock manure back to put mm-hmm. some of the nutrients back on the soil. Well, the neighbor who's uh, taking that residue to feed his goat or whatever it was is not bringing that manure back. Right. One of the funniest ones was oh, uh, on a field demonstration in Ukraine, uh, we were doing a uh, soil sampling demo and a drill demo, and uh, we were in freshly harvested wheat stubble. And as we're standing there with a crowd of about 100 people standing around us, a quarter mile away from us in that same field, a villager rolled his wheelbarrow out there with his pitchfork, filled that <laughs> wheelbarrow heaping full of wheat straw, and then pushed back into the village. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Okay, this group's even more advanced, looking at no-till, looking at technology, but they still have to deal with society. And yeah. again, it's I can't fault them. <laughs> you know, that's the way they've done it for years. Right. We had a speaker, maybe '94, '95, from Illinois, who had, I think it was in the Ukraine that he had gone, and they had got some land, and they were working with some of those uh, big farmers with all the workers and. He couldn't. He couldn't get this guy. That he, he said this guy was convinced of the value of no-till, but I couldn't get him to do it on his big farm. And he finally said to me, "No-till makes sense for me. It really works. But if I go to no-till, how am I going to keep these other hundred people employed on this farm?" That, that's exactly right. Uh, also on the program, you've had a couple of speakers from Ukraine who work with a farm group. I knew they a little name drop and Agrosoyas. Sure. Uh, Agrisoyas, they have come to the U.S. Uh, They spent, uh, across the years, um, representatives of theirs have been at many of your conferences as well as other conferences across the states. They wanted to learn about no-till, learn about protecting the soil. But at the same time, they also went to Australia to learn about ostriches. They went to Denmark to learn about swine production. They went um, to the Netherlands uh, to learn uh, about... um, dairy production Mm -hmm. and what they did is took a collective farm that used to be only crops they uh, went to no-till and they actually patterned after Dwayne Beck's uh, Dakota Lakes research farm where they're doing a lot of demonstration plots but also adopting the crop rotation and things like that and so the no-till did have a reduced reduced labor demand but now they put in an ostrich breeding facility they put in the dairy they put in the livestock and these farm workers who are displaced from driving the tractor doing tillage is now learning how to feed a baby pig, things like right, this. Right. And again, when it came to labor, uh, when this uh, agrisoys got started, in that area there was a couple hundred farm workers from the village that worked the collective farm. They still have a couple hundred farm workers, but they're not just raising crops. They're raising right. crops, livestock, uh, diversity. People are fully employed yet, and they are getting much more profitable because they are doing so much more. And again, when it comes to helping other groups, uh, just thinking about things that they haven't done in the past. You know, historically, Grandpa raised this little crop, Dad raised this little crop, I raised this little crop, and that's the way I'm going to make my living. 
well, wait a minute, diversity or spread the risk, spread the workload, those things have to be taken into account. Yeah. We've had over the years, we've had uh, rotary heralds, we've had vertical tillage, we've had strip till. I always kind of looked at you as a no-till Puritan. You were never too excited about these other ideas, were you? Uh, I never have been, and actually, it's sort of contrary to my training. You know, I went through school to be an ag engineer interested in machine design. Mm-hmm. I took all the machine design courses, and I pictured myself <laughs> working with some machinery company, designing and bringing out this new equipment they're talking about. And to be truthful, I can't fault those companies for doing that. That's what they got to do. They got to come out with something new and make sales. That's how they make their living. And as long as they're doing it to solve a problem and you know, make conditions better for who's ever using their product, I can see that. It's when they start stepping across the lines into other areas that it doesn't exactly belong or when they start just thinking about sales, not thinking about preserving the land. And you mentioned the flexible harrow. The flexible harrow was originally invented to break up cow pies and improve pastures and do a little tickle the soil surface. And it's a great tool to do that. Uh, the salesman who says, let's sell it to the corn farmer to harrow his corn stalks and knock them all loose so they blow in the wind and wash away with the next water, it's not a great tool for that. Yeah. And so, again, when it, I, I, I don't fault those guys. I just want them to think about what they're selling and what they're trying to accomplish. And that's what I tell producers. Uh, when you think about buying a new piece of equipment or buying an attachment for your planter, is look at who invented it, what problem was he trying to solve, do you have that problem? Mm-hmm. If you do, go out and buy it. Yeah. If they have this uh, attachment, and uh, you know, I uh, appreciated Howard Martin's work that he's done across the years. Howard Martin was in a higher rainfall area, a little bit of tillage for the Martin Till system, dried out his excess water, and it was a great attachment. Farmers ask me in western conditions, uh, what about the Martin Till system? I'm like, well... Hard Martin was trying to get rid of excess water. How much excess water do you have? Well, none. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, again, don't listen to the salesman about how great this piece of equipment is. It's more important, listen to the salesman. What does that piece of equipment does? What problem does it solve? Do I have that problem? Yeah. Let's talk about a couple ideas that have just caught on in, in the last couple of years and see what you think of them. One is with cover crops, planting green into them instead of uh, – killing it down before you plant. And then the other one would be interseeding cover crops into maybe corn in in June when it's still really young. Well, I I have to laugh. Uh, We've already mentioned I've been doing this continuous no-till on one set of plots for 40 years. Uh, My first, uh, second year, uh, I had learned that I didn't know much about weed control. Uh, Weeds uh, basically use the soil moisture such that I couldn't get a stand. Uh, weeds uh, basically uh, used the nutrients. I couldn't get a good yield. And I spent my next five years learning about early pre-plant herbicide and never let weeds get started, planting into a clean field. I spent 25 years telling producers to do that. And about uh, oh, 15, 20 years ago, I learned about cover crops. And I go like, well, wait a minute, I need a brain <laughs> transplant. Uh-huh. And at brain transplant, when you start thinking about it, uh, if you think about soil life, soil biology, feeding the soil, planting green into a cover crop is one of the best things we can do. When it mm-hmm. comes to dewatering excess soil, 
excess soil moisture. It's one of the best things we can do. When it comes to providing aggregate stability, those extra roots is the best thing we can do. It's planting green becomes, why aren't we doing it? Yeah. And again, it depends on your rainfall, depends where you're at, depends crop you're using, you know, how much soil moisture you got stored. There's a lot of depends on that. But again, when it comes to the concepts there, I love it. When it comes to diversity, I love it. When it comes to everything else, the trouble we hit in a lot of areas, and in Nebraska in particular and further west, is risk management. And mm-hmm. risk management, uh, unfortunately, to a lot of people, it is let's rely on government policy, government payments. Our risk management agency, as they are named, uh, have a definition of standard production practices. Right. Planting green is not a standard production practice in a low rainfall area. Mm-hmm. Now, in a high rainfall area, they've adjusted some things. Sure. Um, when it comes to other people out there, risk management to them is not relying on a government check. It is spreading my workload, spreading my risk, spreading my crop rotation, spreading my diversity, building the soil. Now, all of a sudden, planting green as risk management is a valuable tool for the guy with excess water or no soil structure. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's a definition thing. Uh, when it comes to planting green, when it comes to companion cropping, interceding into existing growing crops, there's plenty of benefits to it. Now, I have to laugh a little bit, though. When I see those benefits, I was warned a few years ago by an administrator above me. It says, you work for extension, you're not doing research. We pay you to educate. And I go, yeah, I know. And so I'm not supposed to be out there doing research on these new projects. So I work with farmer cooperatives. I watch Planting Green. I try Planting Green. But I'm not supposed to do research on it. Well, then they reminded me also, since you were doing education, you're not supposed to do anything that puts a farmer at risk. And I go, what do you mean? It says, you are going to help them adopt better practices, not do something that's going to risk their income or risk their crop. And I'm like, such as? And he says, well, if something's not allowed in the government programs, you can't tell them to do it. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was, that's stupid. I didn't right. say that out loud, <laughs> but I sort of agreed with them. And, you know, in Nebraska, uh, especially in western Nebraska, we can't plant green and get crop insurance. Sure. And my administrator reminded me that a lot of farmers rely on the farm programs. And so, you know, I've not spent a lot of time looking at it, a lot of time talking about it, but I love it. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the companion crops, uh, and again, going back to when I was 10 years old, riding in Gate Cedar, we were seeding oats. Dad was throwing in hairy vetch. That was a companion crop. Hairy vetch was fixing nitrogen, growing after oats harvest. Crop insurance doesn't allow that. Mm-hmm. Oats had to grow as a single species. Well, oats insurance program is just basically non-existent. But anyway, you know what I mean. Right. You can't have two things growing in the field if I wanted insurance. Well, again, in Nebraska, we can do a companion crop. We can fly it on after our cash crop is matured, which means, you know, the corn's black layered, the soybean pods are brown. I can go ahead and fly on a cover crop. Uh-huh. Uh, what I seeded at uh, V6 growing stage, like, you know, last week, uh, like a lot of producers are doing, look, that just canceled my crop insurance. So, again, if I'm doing my risk management using federal programs, I'm not a fan of it. If I'm yeah. doing risk management by making a healthier soil system and growing more residue and fixing some nitrogen and feeding the soil microbes, then the list goes on, I love it. And so, again, it depends on where you're at, uh, what rules you have to follow for what games you want to play. And sometimes I actually do say the word games 
Some people play the game of the farm program. Others play uh, risk management on their own. And so, again, where are you at? I love the uh, concept of companion crops. I love the concept of the seed to cover crop earlier. And, again, the purist who did work on crop water use on a single species in tilled soil, yeah, that companion crop used water. But for the person who looks at a biologically active system and the advantage that that diversity of root gives you of a companion crop, uh, the little trade-off I get of the little water used is it improves something else such that a lot of times the yields aren't even affected or they go up. Well, I want to close this up, Paul, but I want to make a couple comments here. I know you've, you've won a number of awards for all your work all over the years, well-deserved. But there's been two that should be special to you from our own no-till farmer audience because you were named one of the no-till innovators in education a number of years ago. And then when we did a uh, list of the 25 most important no-till legends, you were on that list. And this goes back to all your ideas on practical and being able to share all your ideas with uh, no-tillers around the country. So thank you for doing this today, and thank you for having a great career in the no-till field. Appreciate all the support that you and similar to you give us help in getting the word out. Because, again, like I said earlier, farmers aren't very good at spreading the word. Uh, that's right. where I, my educational programs have been doing that. And I've had a lot of help from people like yourselves getting that word out. And that's where I'm uh, actually humbled by being recognized by people for just doing my job, getting the word well, out. Well deserved. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. We've had several uh, readers ask recently about sizing residue at harvest and the importance of that in uh, no-tillage. Back in 2002, we had Kevin Anderson speak at the National No-Tillage Conference, and he's a veteran no-tiller and was a short-line equipment manufacturer for many years from Andover, South Dakota. And Kevin says you've got to take the time to adjust your combine properly in order to effectively slice residue at the proper length. What's important about doing this is that uh, correctly sized residue will improve seed to soil contact when no-tilling your crops the following spring. It can lead to improved microbiology soil activity and provide you with much more efficient fertilizer usage. Kevin was advocating this back in 2002 and now we've got a number of uh, attachments you can put on your combine to better size uh, residue which makes no-till much easier than it was in those days. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Paul Yassa for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.